Hello again and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hari and today we take a look at one of the most famous musicals in cinema history, a film that went against the 70s bleakness of films coming out and basically kick-started things to come out in the 80s. I'll give you the 1978 musical Grease, starring John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John and Jeff Conaway. A musical made in the late 70s, which is set in the late 50s, about the teenagers of Rydell High School, who are in fact played by actors in their mid-20s, pushing 30, and all in all, glorifying sexual dominant male characters as we bat an eyelid on the serious themes and issues of the characters, and instead, lose ourselves in nostalgia to the amazing songs and dancing in this movie that bring a happy smile to our faces. With the bleakness of the 70s, it was certainly a shock to see a movie of Grease's calibre to appear amongst the mitts of films like The Godfather, Taxi Driver or The Deer Hunter. However, at first glance, this musical offers a heavily nostalgic high school atmosphere of the stereotypical day of Grease's of the late 50s. But not all is what it seems. It just may not be as colourful as you first thought. But I'm not here to ruin your nostalgia. I'm simply here to inform and call out these themes and issues and then happily defend them, because like you, and like millions of others, this film holds a special place in many memories. So what we're going to do is just have a little look inside Greece a little closely and see if, in fact, Greece is the word. I mean, technically speaking, the word Greece is never actually said throughout the entire movie. The closest you get to it is um, through the song Grease Lightning, where Greece is spelt with an ED at the end, so that's probably the closest you get to hearing the word Greece. I mean, there's no real reason of me explaining the premise of the movie. Those who have seen it, of course, know what the movie is about. And those who haven't seen it must know what the generic plot is. That being said, though, I am doing a podcast on a movie and it's only fair that I should explain the plot of the movie. I mean, it's set in 1958 in America where two polar opposites, a greaser and a goody two-shoes girl, fall in love during the summer only to unexpectedly be in the same high school where their respected stereotypes in high school add dents to their summer love. But as the story goes on, as conflicts occur and songs are sung, their love stays true and with a turn of generic storytelling goes, the goody two-shoe girl decides to become bad. I say bad, she becomes a greaser rather than the ignorant greaser becoming the good guy. The nice refreshing turn of events at the end of the movie was a nice change to the usual male character changing for the female rather than the female going to the darker side and finished with a assumed happy ending. The ending was deemed quite controversial by many people since Sandy is changing her you know, her respected self to fit in with the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies. But according to Jim Casey, who created Grease, it was meant to be spoofing other movies and not to be done as a serious thing. You see, most musicals and in fact, most romantic comedy films prior to this and even after Grease was made tend to have the bad boy repent and become good for the girl. I mean, if you look at a few films, Ten, Finger, Ten Things I Hate About You does this with Heath Ledger. Crazy Stupid Love does this with Ryan Gosling, Love Story that was done in the 70s, Rebel Without a Cause, She's the Man. I mean, there are so many films that do this. So I guess Jim Casey had a really good thought process in flipping this trivial, generic storyline and applying it to the opposite sex. And it works quite well. I mean, the line, hey there, stud, or whatever the line is, is very iconic for many reasons, mainly for the controversy of her being a woman. Um, I mean, for a while, I mean, there's no there's no real need in telling you how successful this movie was. I mean, this film was the third highest grossing movie ever, which is quite a reputation for a teen musical. It sat only behind Star Wars and Jaws. Of course, it doesn't need to be said, but it was the highest grossing film of 1978, let alone the third of all time. But 
1978 had some crazy films to compete with. I mean, Superman came out, the first one. Uh, Jaws came out the year before. Midnight Express, Halloween, the first one came out. The first Lord of the Rings came out. Not the Peter Jackson one, but the first ever adaptation of it. National Lampoon, if you're a fan of that. Revenge of the Pink Panther. So it was quite a competitive year. It grossed just under $160 million domestically. As of 2017, it still managed to gross over $394 worldwide and with a budget of just $6 million. It is now the second highest musical film of all time, sitting behind Chicago, which ended up winning the Oscar for Best Film in 2002, I believe. Grease only had the one Oscar nomination, not really hitting the award shows running, but instead hitting audiences with smiling faces rather than critics, with the use of future nostalgia and present feel-good moments. In fact, I think no one in the cast of Grease has ever been nominated for an Oscar to this date. I think, well, I say nominated, won an Oscar to this date. John Travolta, however, has been nominated. He was nominated for Pulp Fiction, which is another movie where John Travolta wins a dancing contest. And another one being Saturday Night Fever too. But the only nomination came from a song, which wasn't even meant to be in the movie in the first place, which was hopelessly devoted to you. And the song was actually recorded and filmed after the movie had finished production. You see, Olivia Newton-John's contract for Grease stipulated that she would have a solo song. However, nobody had any ideas for a song for her character, Sandy, until Olivia's producer, John Farrar, came up with Hopelessly Devoted to You halfway through the shoot. So the director wasn't wholly convinced by the song at first and had to come up with an entirely new scene to fit it in. But they filmed it and they did it after the movie was already done and they made some adjustments to it and it ended up in the film its only Oscar nomination. I mean, musicals have now heavily increased in popularity and at the time, Grease, like I said, was the highest grossing movie of all time. And if you look at it now, as of today, in 2020, it is now the eighth, the eighth highest movie earner of all time. The seven movies ahead of it were all done in the last 12 years, which just shows how musicals have made a massive U-turn in this generation. So there have been seven other musicals that have done better than Grease, but those seven films have been done in the last 12 years. Grease was done 40 years ago, so it just shows the sort of calibre it holds. And those seven films, if you're interested, I mean, it's Mary Poppins, The Greatest Showman, La La Land, Beauty and the Beast, not the, um, the Emma Watson one, Aladdin, Mamma Mia and sitting top at the moment is The Lion King but I don't know if it's on top because it's been you know people like newer things so that's probably why it's there um so the original you know the original idea of Greece sort of stemmed from a Broadway production way back at the Eden Theatre back in 1972 six years before the movie even came out I think it ran like over 3,000 performances at the Eden which was like at a time set a record and it was quite interesting because John Travolta was a replacement on Broadway for the role of Doody. And believe it or not, for um, Danny Zuko, Patrick Swayze at one point was a stand-in and also so was Richard Gere, which would have been quite an interesting cast. However, the Broadway is said to have plagiarized its story from a 1930 film called News, which is about a, you know, a couple of star-crossed lovers who are very different cliches, ended up fighting and dancing in a flirtatious manner until they come together at the end, although this was only speculated years after the movie came out, not the Broadway show. The original Broadway show was, in fact, a lot more, how can I put it, um, racier of its time. I mean, one example was Rizzo's line in Summer Nights, I think his line is because he sounds like a drag. I think the original line in a Broadway show is he sounds like a fag. 
And there are other bits which they've toned down for the movie. I mean, saying that, though, there's still a lot of sexual jokes or insults that are left in the movie from the original Broadway show. But the movie exists today as a happy moment, and it's worth seeing simply for nostalgia purposes and also to see a vintage Travolta. John Travolta just finished Saturday Night Fever, and four days after filming that... He started rehearsing for Greece. I mean, those were arguably his two biggest films. Well, I'd say Pulp Fiction is one of his biggest films, but, you know, Saturday Night Fever and Greece are those two films that really put him on the map. And he demanded to have his hair blue-black, just like Elvis in the movie, which, of course, they did. And there's a scene of Travolta with a cling film rap in the song Grease Lightning. It's like a few seconds, but he's playing around with it. And back then, men thought that wrapping the cling film around your genitals would prevent diseases when having sex. I mean, they were wrong, but that's what they thought back then. And it's why Danny is playing around with that cling film during the song. However, he was told by the directors not to do anything sexual with it, and they wanted to avoid an R rating for the movie. Simply just hold it in the air would connote the message across. However, Travolta disobeyed the director and rubbed it on his crotch, and it's still in the movie today. They basically had to beg the studios to keep it in the movie, and somehow it's still in the movie, and they've kept the below R rating, which is great. Um, but, you know, Travolta had a mind of his own and obviously he, you know, he was very spontaneous with his moves. I mean, his John Travolta ended up using his dancing skills in most movies he's in now, most notably in the Pulp Fiction, Look Who's Talking, Staying Alive, Saturday Night Fever and Hairspray. And interestingly enough, with Hairspray, both were period piece musicals about hair, which were both directed and produced by gay men. But that's just a cool little fact that sort of connote together. And the title Greece refers, of course, to the Greases of which the movie focuses on. In this movie, they are to the, I think they identify themselves as the T-Birds, who all greases the hell out of their hair. And this was a massive community of subculture back in the 50s. Apparently, it could have started from World War II, where men had these motorcycle clubs and gangs just after the war. And then the original Greases were aligned by a feeling of disillusion with America popular culture, even... You know, through lack of economic opportunity in spite of the post-war boom or marginalization enacted by the general domestic shift towards everyone wanted to be the same and try and fit in into a group, which is where these high school stereotypes probably came from. And so, so as the years went on, you know, these leather jackets came across and greased up hair and they became quite popular because of middle class kids wanted to be drawn to this subculture of being rebellious and looking the part and, you know. And it was sort of like a sex symbol for women as well. And um, it's in the movie. And that's why you have the pink ladies and the T-Birds in the late 50s. And one of my favorite characters in Greece is Kaniki, simply just because of that tough guy persona he holds on that scene when he's trying to be trying to be all tough. But there's a scene where he's, been, he's trying to be humane and asks John Travolta to drive for him. And he says, yes, can you drive for me? Which was some really good acting. And I just love that little moment where you can see the real character behind the character, which is, um, you know, which is really hard to do. And John John Conaway, who plays um, Kaniki, he was actually just a little bit smaller in height than Travolta, but he was still roughly around the same height from like first glance. So every time they was walking next to each other, the director had to tell Jeff Conaway to crouch down a little bit because the three the other three uh, T birds are quite small, so they wanted Travolta to sort of tower over the rest of them. But staying on topic with uh, Jeff Conaway, I mean, Jeff Conaway was pretty obsessed with Olivia Newton-John and he kept fluffing his lines every time he was around her. Hence why they hardly have any scenes together. Just the one at the diner, I think. But you can tell he's trying not to look at her. And uh, <laughs> quite a cool fact, he ended up marrying her sister in real life, Rona Newton-John, which is quite interesting. Don't know how that went through, but anyway... But yeah, it was not all fun and games with Jeff, though. I mean, during Grease Lightning, he was actually dropped by the wiring and he hurt his back. And the actors, you know, he started taking painkillers, which eventually turned into prescription drugs. 
and that sort of spiraled into a drug addiction. And eventually he died in 2011 at the age of 60, so it was quite sad. I mean, the film had a few issues with some of the scenes. The dance content, uh, contest, for instance, was shot during the summer. Well, in fact, the whole movie was shot over the summer. But in that scene, though, there was no air conditioning and the doors were closed to control the lighting for the scene. So a few extras, uh, extras had to be removed because it was that hot. And I have no idea how the actors managed to be dancing. I don't know how they were dancing during that scene because all their dancing was so passionate and so full on. So God knows how they did that. And the last scene, the, you're, the uh, what was it called? You're, you're the one that I want, yeah. That was around 41 degrees, and Olivia Newton-John had to be sewn into her trousers after the zipper, uh, the zipper broke. I think they sewed it in each morning in those trousers, so she had to be quite careful of what she ate and what she drank for the entire week. She called that whole week excruciating, saying that, though, for the whole week, it was hell. Even though the song, You're the One That I Want, was actually filmed in one afternoon, but you know, there's a lot more scenes of her in those leather pants. But like I said, the film is often seen as one of the best musicals ever made, and the figures definitely back that up, and it may be ranked eighth of all time, but the you know, the seven before it are merely twelve years old. Greece has survived for over forty years, and it's still being talked about today. Of course, as we enter a new, you know, a new generation and a new way of thinking in terms of ethic and what is acceptable in movies nowadays, and we enter a, this stage of reevaluation and overthinking on what films can get away with now, back then, and what we can get away with now. I mean, what films can do or can't do. I mean, that is a completely different conversation. I don't think it's a case of witch hunting or even actors who may have made mistakes or even directors on what they choose was acceptable at the time. I think we've reached a point where banter isn't what it used to be. You can't get away with sexist jokes like you could in the 70s anymore. The movie exists today as a movie of its time, and that's exactly what it is. To shame it for not being politically correct today is flawed thinking. The past cannot be changed, and the way of thinking certainly could not have been changed during the last century. But one thing is for sure. We have become stronger. We have become more aware of people's feelings. But in terms of art that exists today, that may or may not have insulted our sensitive intelligence today, it's a matter of what trumps what. The experience of the movie and how the director has given you the best realistic portrayal of characters, or we just keep a narrow mind and choose to see everything as remotely questionable as something we should boycott. Greece should not be one of those movies. What Greece did was create a world where children, teens, and even adults can lose themselves in the 1950s with the vibrant experience of high school. And it's very common knowledge that all the actors playing the main characters were not teenagers. Of course, John Travolta was one of actually the youngest. He was 23. I think Olivia Newton-John was 28. The age of all the actors varied from between the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies varied from 19 to 31. However, with today's culture of ethics and the oversensitivity of you know this generation, some of the points do hold merit and should be explored. And it questions whether films like Grease, which were enormously successful have influenced men to become or inspired to become like the T-Birds. I mean, one can even look deeper into the lyrics of the song, which glorifies misogyny and a possible rape culture. I mean, Kaniki sings, did she put up a fight in Summer Loving? Or when Marty mentions that Vince put an aspirin in her coat, which sounds like a date rape drug. We also have Danny force himself on Sandy twice during the driving scene. We have one of them lift up a girl's dress and she runs away sobbing. We have a dominant, well, we have dominant examples of the men getting their way and suffering no consequences whatsoever. When Blanche tries to break up the Thunderbird antics at the prom, at which point Doody picks her up and shakes her up and down while she's screaming the whole time. 
I mean, Sandy's even overjoyed to see Danny at the homecoming bonfire, but Danny cruelly ignores her in front of everyone and blows her off. Sandy tries to dance with Danny at the prom, and someone lifts her up and carries her off so that Danny can win the contest with Cha-Cha, while Sandy's embarrassed and angry. I mean, Frenchie even calls Cha-Cha the best dancer at St. Benedict's with the worst reputation, even though all the men are just as promiscuous as her, and they don't get a similar negative reputation about them. You know, you've got Patty who runs up to Danny at the Frosty Palace and asks him to have another, you know, try at her in the past. And he, re- he, re- he just ignores her, rebukes her like he did with Sandy at the homecoming bonfire. So apparently Danny has been playing Patty just like he's been playing Sandy, using her in private and blowing her off in public. You know, Danny, Danny sort of continually acts shady in public around Sandy because he doesn't want to shed his image as a tough guy, but continues to make moves on her in private. The T-Birds sing about Grease Lightning being a real pussy wagon. You know, Danny tells Rizzo to bite the weenie Riz at the Frosty Palace, which he unheartily enjoys with relish, she says. You know, these are loads of examples of things that maybe things could get explored and maybe turn the wrong way. I mean, you know, even the T-Birds, they get all raunchy and promiscuous throughout the movie and are rewarded for it. But when Rizzo does it, she gets humiliated when the whole school finds out she might be pregnant. Patty even calls her out and laughs at her. That's the girl. That's the girl I was telling you about. She says that in front of all of her friends, laughing at Rizzo and running off. And it's, it's, you have to sort of maybe think twice about these scenes. I mean, was this done intentionally to be, you know, malicious? And then, you know, the T-Birds even moon the camera on live TV and everyone sees it and they don't have a single consequence to get them. Unlike Paul Rizzo, who gets humiliated. The whole issue of Danny and Sandy being in separate cliches and separate classes is revolved by Sandy becoming a bad girl. So Danny won't be embarrassed, so he, so, you know, to be with her in public and so that he won't be frustrated sexually. In essence, she's given himself, you know, herself up for him, which in the original script, by the way, she goes all the way with him to please Danny. These are just some of the many points in cinema, you know, by various critics today, young ones, about why Greece should, you know, be examined under a microscope over these themes. But if you look for something like this, you can find it in almost everything. Does that mean action films can't have guns anymore? Does that take away the fantasy of Bond being a womanizer? Does that get revoked? I mean, the horror genre is based on violence. And even based on inspiring events in a real event uh, in the real world, how do you not talk about that? How can we not pick holes in the horror genre? The world wants to be perfect, but in doing so, it's turning into an unnecessary act of witch hunting. Films exist for entertainment, for an experience, not to pick holes. If you don't like it, don't watch it. I know what Greece means to me. I enjoy Greece, and I understand this film was made in the seventies. But where do we draw the line? Should we? You know, should we, you know, shall, shall we enjoy films like The Joker, where the main character goes on a killing spree? Should we be watching where the world is fake and perfect? It's, it's an ongoing discussion where, in the end, it depends on what part of your mind takes over. Time changes, and with change comes adaptation. It's as simple as that. Now, I shall end with one of the biggest fan theories of all time. Much like how Ferris Bueller may not be real, we can also assume that Sandy is, in fact, dead. And the movie plays as a near-death hallucination. Now, I apologise for completely dropping in a different perspective on the movie's upbeat tone by adding a little darkness to a musical classic. I am sorry. But the basic theory stems that Sandy drowned at the beach at the start of the movie. And the flyaway car scene at the end of the movie is her ascent into heaven. Now, if you look at the film, it doesn't actually seem that far-fetched. 
It does seem odd that at the end the car seems to fly away, knowing full well that it's probably the only song in the movie that isn't imaginary, but in fact happening for real. I mean, both Grease Lightning and Beauty, or was it Beauty School Dropout, I think the name of the song is? They both play on the character's imagination, which is why the ending sort of raises eyebrows since it's not being imagined. I mean, during the lyrics of Summer Loving too, the lyrics suggest that Danny and Sandy met when she got a cramp while swimming. And Danny saved her from drowning before showing off or splashing around. While it might sound like empty bragging, the theory does suggest that Sandy actually did drown. And everything that follows is Sandy fantasizing about her life could have been before she died. So from, the, so from that scene onwards, every event that happens plays out in Sandy's mind. And the reason because everything wraps up so perfectly for every character Despite all of the conflict in the movie, all of the arguments, all of the, you know, the misdirection, you know, the movie finds its way to the finale. And that's all it is, is Sandy's tragic wish fulfillment. You know, as a newcomer to Rydell High School, Sandy would have been an outsider. But her reality plays her just as a a dream world. She's immediately accepted by the coolest group, the Pink Ladies, meets the boys of, you know, meets the boy of her dream again and overcomes every issue. And it's not just her. Rizzo's pregnancy scare, the dance competition that Danny wins, the drag race, um, at, you know, at, the, at Thunder Road. Er, everything in this movie ends with a happy ending, no matter what the seeming obstacle is. It's a very entertaining theory, and it depends on which version you believe in. I mean, the uh, the theory also suggests that Sandy's mournful replies of "Look at me, I'm Sandra D." and the final two lines of that song is. Take a deep breath and sigh goodbye to Sandra D, specifically secretly confirming that Sandy had actually lost her battle to live. In that respect, the image of Grease Lightning flying off with Danny alongside Sandy at the end of Grease is actually symbolic of her ascending to the afterlife and her transformation is not one of self-realization but of death. The metaphorical rise then is her rising to heaven in the final moments of her life, eking out in her final breaths on the sand. I mean, it's tragic and quite dark, but there is a hint of beauty to it. I mean, no matter what you choose to believe, we can all agree that this film was made with spontaneity and love. And it shouldn't be taken too seriously in terms of the microscopic themes. Rather, just enjoy this vintage movie, vintage Travolta, vintage high school movie, the experience and a highly nostalgic journey through high school. But listen, I'm rambling on with Greece now. I think that's all we have time for for Greece. Um, please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, uh, Google, and Spotify. And I'm also on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, or lowercase or one word. And thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.